The Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there for a while with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jewish people, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? Jesus said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a child here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up. And from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea had become rough because strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But Jesus said to them, Here I am. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Way back in March, Pastor Craig preached a sermon where he called out the sin of supersessionism. Now, that is a big word, so let's break it down again. It's the idea that the new covenant established through Jesus Christ supersedes the old covenant, which was made exclusively with the Jewish people. Essentially, it's saying that Christianity finally got it right with Jesus and somehow we became the new and improved Judaism. And it comes through in sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways. Like when somebody would say, the Old Testament God is a jerk. Or that the Hebrew texts are all law and no gospel. Or thank God we have the New Testament. All of these are ways in which we as Christians can contribute to anti-Semitic prejudice and It'll hurt our Jewish siblings if we're not intentional about our language and our beliefs. So with this in mind, we decided that all summer at Holy Trinity we were going to do some in-house work and educate ourselves by preaching from the semi-continuous Old Testament readings. In today's reading from 2 Samuel, it's 
one that we've all probably heard before, because it's notorious. It's the story of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. And this story is notorious because what David does is such an abuse of power. It's truly a, a Game of Thrones level Me Too moment. And while ancient Israel called David's action adultery, since David did have intercourse with a woman who was married to another man, I think we need to understand David's action being closer to rape. Because Bathsheba is not a consenting adult since she is taken by the king and he has power over his subjects. On top of that, David tries to protect himself by bringing Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from battle to sleep with Bathsheba, to cover up the fact that David was in fact the one who impregnated Bathsheba. Then when Uriah proves that he is upright by not sleeping in his house but sleeping outside to be in solidarity with his fellow comrades in battle, David has Uriah sent to the front lines where the most intense fighting is happening and orders the troops to be pulled, to be pulled back, leaving Uriah unprotected and ultimately killed. What David has become as Israel's king in this moment is a strong man. In his commencement address at Harvard University back in 1890, W.E.B. Du Bois characterized a strong man as this, individualism coupled with the rule of might. Under whatever guise, as man, as race, or as nation, his life can only logically mean this, the advance of a part of the world at the expense of the whole, the overweening sense of the I, and the consequent forgetting of the thou. The advance of a part at the expense of a whole, the overweening sense of I and the forgetting of the thou, that is what guides the strong man, or the strong race, or the strong nation. And they achieve their ends by the rule of might. And from the opening sentence of today's first reading, we can see that David has fallen under the lie of the strong man. It says in the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. It's presented to us almost like it's a fact of life, that springtime is when the kings do battle. And David believes in what Walter Wink calls the myth of redemptive violence. Wink des describes this, the belief that violence saves. It's so successful because it doesn't seem to be mythic in the least. Violence simply appears to be the true nature of things. It's what works. It seems inevitable, the last and often the first resort in conflicts. And it's what David has turned to as he has fallen for the lies of the strong man. <clears throat> David believes that war will advance Israel. David believes that sexual violence against Bathsheba is his right as king. And David believes that murderous violence against Uriah will save his own reputation and standing. So what can we then take from such a tragic and violent story? Is this simply just a moral lesson against the abuse of power 
when we believe in the lies of the strong man or when we put our faith in the myth of redemptive violence? Or is it the fact that even someone who behaves as diabolically as David can be made an instrument of God and can eventually pave the way for Jesus to create a, a second covenant so that all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, will know that they are worthy of God's grace and forgiveness and have been made members of the beloved community of God. But I don't know. I don't know if either of those options sound quite right. The former seems too moralistic, and the latter feels like a rush to forgive David, a violent abuser of power, and especially since we leave off today in the middle of the story, we haven't yet even had a chance to see any signs of David's repentance. I think at this point in the story, the message of God's grace and forgiveness for David feels too soon, and not a message of good news. So instead, what I think we need to do, I think we need to read God into this story. God is not ever explicitly mentioned but we know that God is a God of justice. We know that God is a God of peace. We know that even when the strong man is wielding violence and abusing power, God is present in and with the victims of that violence. And beyond that, God is binding the strong man. We heard that line, binding the strong man, all the way back on June 9th in our gospel from Mark 3. It's what Ched Myers claims to be the master metaphor for Jesus' mission in Mark's gospel. That Jesus is binding the strong man and plundering his house. And that metaphor might, might make us uneasy. Jesus being a plunderer it might even feel violent in its own right. But what Jesus is doing in this metaphor, I think, follows in line with the whole arc of God's story. From the Old Testament to the New Testament that affirms our scripture is a story about the reign of God displacing another reign. But we live in a time of already but not yet where God has bound the strong man but yet the binding continues because the Lord knows the strong man continues to reign. And we see continued faithfulness to this myth of redemptive violence. With every woman silenced and paid off in the name of consent. With every bomb dropped in the name of peacemaking. With every police bullet that tears through the flesh of our black and brown siblings in the name of safety. And with every immigrant child ripped from their mother's arms in the name of law and order. We are witnesses. We are complicit with the violence and deeds of the strong man. But God has bound the strong man. We can hold fast to nonviolence and have faith that God has come to us in Jesus Christ, not so that we can be part of the quote-unquote right religion, advanced at the expense of the whole, but that we would be able to see ourselves as part of the whole. So that we would not forget the thou or believe that we must comply with the rule of might and put ourselves above others. God's reign that is coming to displace our reign is one of peace 
and love and grace and gentleness. It's coming to displace the reign of redemptive violence carried out by the strong man. King David believed the lies of the strong man and placed his faith in the myth of redemptive violence. And I think we'd be lying if we said we aren't susceptible to those attractive lies ourselves. It can sometimes look as innocent as placing the New Testament over and above the old. But supersessionism is the work of the strong man. It's the overweening sense of the I and the consequent forgetting of the thou, as W.E.B. Du Bois so eloquently put it. So as children of God and members of God's beloved community, be heartened and remember our oneness that we share with our Jewish siblings and with all children of God. For the infinite power of God is at work. It's at work in the thou, the thou that is binding the individualism and the might of the strong man. Amen.